Today's read, Midnight, a gangster love story by Sister Soldier, Chapter 11, Midnight. Monday through Thursday, I play basketball at night after my sister and my moms, along with the majority of people in the hood who don't want no problems, were in a deep sleep. I like the court better when it's empty. Dribbling the ball always releases my attention. Sinking the ball in the hoop makes me feel good about my possibilities. I dreamed of playing ball blindfolded, getting so familiar with the dimensions of the court and becoming so aware and comfortable that I could just sense the position of the basket and sink the ball all net. I figured once I could start hitting those three-pointers blindfolded, I could do any fucking thing. But it was just a dream. I'm too smart to close or cover my eyes while I'm out on the Brooklyn streets, even in the neighborhood playground. After a while, there was an old wino cat who started leaning on the fence watching me play. He used to call me midnight since I only played late at night. Every now and then, he'd bring a drinking partner. They'd stand on the side, drink and talk shit. It wasn't long before the name Midnight stuck to me. One night, the court was all dark and foggy. Either somebody had busted the street lamp or it just blew out. Since I could barely see anything, I figured this was my chance to test my senses without having to close my eyes. This was the same night I met a young cat who stepped right out of the darkness and started speaking to me. Peace, God, he hollered out. Right off, I knew he was a five percenter. Like Daquan, superior, conflict, heavenly, and a bunch of people living and dying around my way. They believed that the black man is God, so they addressed black boys and men as God, and the black girls and women were called Earth. Some of them claimed to have something to do with Islam, some of them didn't. It didn't matter to me what they said or called themselves, I kept my eyes on them. It doesn't matter what anyone says, just give them a little bit of time and they'll prove who they are, and what they really believe by how they're living day to day. Over time, I learned to deal with them like they were just another group of people who are not all the way true or serious. I didn't lock horns with them, though. I didn't waste my my time trying to knock them. I moved around them and kept my own beliefs, pace, and flow. Yeah, you nice with it. He added, you should come play on the team. Now I could see the outline of his body, but not the details of his face. Yet I could tell from his voice that he wasn't from my block. I checked the distance between him and my guns that I had stashed on the side. I told myself I messed up. This guy caught me slipping. If he wanted to do me something, it would be my bad all the way but it wasn't his angle I'm Tyreek and you he asked instinctively I told him midnight midnight
He wanted me to come up to the school and play on his team. I told him I couldn't because I was busy and didn't have time for every day after school practices and a coach running my life. Nah, God, he said, this is not the school team. We just rent their court and sometimes their gym, you know, like intramural. I didn't know what intramural meant, so I just stayed quiet. He explained that this team was just the best young ballers in Brooklyn competing against one another in a tournament. He said it didn't matter if I wasn't a schoolboy. He gave me the info on the meeting spot, time and place, and went on his way. I dribbled the ball while I watched him walking away. My side hustles kept me moving in and out of all types of situations. We ride together, Uma and I, still. After I get Uma to her workplace, I am free to handle business, homeschool work, or whatever is necessary. On early Friday and Saturday mornings, I always head to Chinatown, located in Lower Manhattan, where I have a part-time job in a fish market owned by a Chinaman named Cho. I caught the job one day while shopping for fresh fish for my mother to cook. She didn't care how far I had to go to find fresh food that she would feel good about cooking. She often said that the local markets were selling Brooklyn Blacks old, expired, and sometimes even rotten food. While searching for a proper fish market, she taught me how to pull the fish gills back and check for the dark red color to be sure that a fish is fresh. A fading pink meant it was not fresh. If the gills were cut out and the fish was cut into pieces or filleted and flaking, it meant it was old fish and the grocer was trying to get over. If the eyeballs of the fish were bloated or expanded in any way or cloudy, this meant the fish was old. Flip it over, my mother would say to me in Arabic. You must check both sides and both fish eyes for freshness. The Chinaman had fish so fresh that some of them were still alive. He'd stick his hand in a huge tank and yank it out. On the scale, the snapper would still be breathing. When I discovered this particular fish shop, I noticed the Chinaman had a picture on a side wall of himself at the helm of a real pretty red 36-foot Raynell fishing boat out on the deep waters of the ocean. I asked him if the boat was his. He pretended not to hear me or understand. They were good at ignoring. I followed up and asked him if he was hiring. He told me the price of my seafood order, accepted my money, and moved right on to the next customer. I was still interested. I had a thing for boats ever since I accompanied my father on a business trip in a badass yacht named Al Salama, cruising across the Red Sea on the invite of a Saudi Arabian prince. In the Sudan, even traveling up the Nile on a felucca was an adventure. It was just the feeling and the freedom that moving across the waters created within me. Besides, the Chinaman had a crazy knife collection. I liked the way he wielded them, slicing the fish so precisely and easily.
My father taught me that language should never be the thing that separates one group of people from another. It's easy to pick up a language if you just learn how to listen. He also taught me that people will treat you better when you take time to learn their greetings and customs. Soon enough, I picked up a Chinese language book for a few dollars from a used bookstore. Easily, I learned how to introduce myself in Chinese and, of course, the Chinese word for boat, Chuhan. I headed back to the fish store the next week, took my time introducing myself in Chinese, and asked if he had work. I did get a smile, but nothing else from the quiet, hard-working Chinaman who seemed to only talk and only understand the language of numbers. I placed my order, paid, and the following week, I showed up in my flannel work shirt, jeans, and Tim's with my fish scaler in my hand. I told him in English that I would work the first day for free. Somehow he understood that. I caught the job. Every Friday and Saturday, from 7 a.m. until 3 p.m., I worked doing everything. Unloading fish from the truck, dropping the live ones into tanks, placing fresh and frozen fish on ice, or scaling then chopping off fish heads, and splitting fish bellies open and gutting them. Chinatown, for me, was an amazing place that sometimes reminded me of my capital city of Khartoum, back home in the Sudan, where my father had an executive business apartment separate from our estate. Chinatown was all about buying and selling any and everything, from Chinese herbs to dried out chicken feet and snake tails, snake oil, clothing, jewels, or restaurant equipment. Every inch of space and property was fully used nothing wasted, including fish eyeballs and fish heads. I observed short and slim Chinamen making a business out of only two feet of space. For 10 hours, they would stand on that small spot they had rented and sell whatever they had to offer. A lot of Chinatown was about language and letters and codes. They spoke a different language used a different system of letters and sometimes hung up signs and prices that no one else but the Chinese people could read and understand. On the low, they even had a separate price for the Chinese. I watched Cho switch up the numbers when his own kind came around. I wasn't mad at it though. I thought it was cool and the same thing any group of people would do for themselves and their people if they had any sense. Cho warmed up to me. I believe because I always showed up on time, made no excuses, and worked hard at anything he asked me to do. This was how it was supposed to be, I thought to myself. He asked no questions about who gave me permission to work, my age, or schooling. He didn't request working papers or social security numbers or nothing. We just got down to getting what needed to be done, done. 
It turned out he knew a lot more English than he originally let on. He paid me in cash at the end of each day as if that was all he could be sure of. Maybe I would show up the next day or I'd just completely disappear. He paid me a different amount each time. I guessed he was basing it on how he felt about whatever he earned for the day. He never cheated me, so his system worked out fine. I knew that in time, he would stop doubting me and I might even get a crack at chilling in the Atlantic Ocean on his big-ass boat. Eventually, he took me on a tour of the world in Chinatown that existed beneath the dark brown metal doors in the cement ground. These doors, when unlocked, led to a network of basements. Downstairs from Cho's, there were tanks and cages filled with live, long black eels, lobsters, crabs, chickens, pigeons, and even cats. A narrow cement underground pathway connected each business on the block to the other. Once we walked past his underground property, we entered the next man's underground space where he was storing unmarked boxed merchandise. Cho said, stay on my side. He explained that the merchants on this strip had an honor system not to tamper with each other's products and a surefire method of dealing with anyone who violated it. I knew what that meant. I had already peeped the short, bald, Chinese strongman, his body built like a rhinoceros. In the thick of the winter, he came around wearing only a t-shirt, as though weather had no effect on him. He entered the shop every Friday, surrounded by his deadly silence, and collected an envelope from Cho. I didn't need to see any more than that to know there was some kind of army behind all of these Asian businesses and that the businesses were forced to pay out protection money. On the way back through the underground tour, Cho pointed out a cement shower stall located on his property with a high-powered water hose and adjustable shower head. He held up a big black bar of soap and said, It was the only soap that gets every trace of the fish scent off your hands and body. He said, My wife hates to smell the fish, but loves to eat the fish. He laughed, a rare laugh at his own joke. His laughter evaporated. Then he told me, This your locker. Bring your own lock. He introduced me to the only cat in the underground who didn't have a price on her head. She was a black cat with gray eyes named Pussy. I asked him why only this one cat was roaming around freely. He said, Pussy good. I checked it all out. I would bring my own lock. I was big on having a locker, a new stash spot, but I didn't plan on showering down there. After work every Friday and Saturday, I would just wash up in the upstairs bathroom to keep my face and my hands clean. Then I would shower each time when I got home. It wasn't long before an incredibly unique-looking, young, dark-eyed Chinese girl started 
eyeballing me. She worked on the same side of the block as me, four stores down. I had seen her a couple times on my way in, selling their merchandise, handbags, hats, and umbrellas. She was very pretty, with big pear-shaped dark eyes, high cheekbones, and very long jet black hair. Sometimes she wore it straight and sleek. Other times she wore it thick and wild. She was always fashionable with a crazy original clothing style. The things she wore were completely different from the items they were selling in her store. With the Asians in Chinatown, there was a big difference between the parents and their children. The youth were hip-hop style like us. She rocked Nike sneakers and always had a girl's style and colors I'd never seen for sale before. I suspected she was buying from the kid sizes because her feet were really small. She seemed sneaky. I figured she was spending her whole lunch break walking back and forth, checking me out. She never came inside the store or bought any fish from Cho. I didn't know what her interest in me was about. I'd be there in my work boots or work kicks, loading and unloading trucks, sometimes wearing a rubber apron covered with fish scales. I liked her subtle mannerisms, like the slow way her eyes moved around trying to take a quick look. The way she once bit her lip when she caught me catching her, staring. The swift way she walked away and disappeared like one of my two green-eyed Egyptian cats from back home named Kush and Kemet. Once, she held her pretty hand against the store glass, the tips of her fingernails glistening with the thin streak of silver glitter she had painted on. I liked the crazy color combinations she wore sometimes. Shit that everybody knows don't go together, but she wore them with such style and ease that she made it look like it was the thing to do. On a snow-filled winter afternoon, she was cashmere down in a cashmere tam, scarf, sweater dress, and even cashmere sweater stockings. Her dark brown leather boots wrapped tight around her calves and climbed high up her leg, stopping just above her knee. She looked high quality, soft, and warm. I could tell that she got at least some of her clothes from the Benetton shop in the village. I had seen a few pieces she wore on display in their window. No matter what she wore, though, she was always styling unlike anybody else. Very original with her clever accessories. Sometimes strange hats, selected scarves, driving gloves, or a rough leather belt with an unusual bucket or just a wicked odd-shaped handbag looking fresh and clean and chilling no matter what the weather or season. On a fog-filled rainy day once, she still showed up to check me. She was beneath a beautiful wooden crimson Chinese umbrella. She was wearing assorted shades of red, beautifully woven and crocheted into a wicked patterned poncho. Her colors were so brilliant that day that they cut through the cloudiness and made her light up 
and stand out from everyone else who, because of the weather, all looked like black or gray gloves, no matter who they were or what they had on. She didn't say nothing when she came around peeking. I could tell she was older than me, and I wondered if she ever considered that I was just 14. One afternoon, when business was slow, I pointed her out to Cho. She was wearing burlap Gucci shorts in the freezing winter with heavy wool tights covering her legs, a rough-ass leather belt with the Gucci interlocking G's, butter Tims, and a wool Applejack hat that matched her stockings. Cho quickly informed me that she was Japanese, not Chinese. He said there was a big difference between the two. He said he had only seen her around the block for less than six months. He said he didn't know her or her people. They're renters, he said. From the way he said it, his tone, I sensed that he had a problem with whichever Chinaman took it upon himself to rent a store in Chinatown to the Japs. I didn't ask him about her again. It was early December, the first time I saw her looking. By the time the new year and then February rolled around, I had never heard her speak even one word. But by that time, at home, I caught myself picturing her in my mind. I wondered if she spoke English or only Japanese. I already knew how to introduce myself in Japanese. I learned it at the dojo for my sensei. I told myself I would walk over and meet her one of these days. She beat me to it and showed up along with her Japanese girlfriend, lounging outside Cho's store five minutes before I was scheduled to get off. I had washed up in the bathroom and came out and found the two of them standing there. I gave Cho a pound. He shot me a look. I walked right out past the two girls. They followed me. Out of Cho's sight, I stopped walking and turned toward them. The girlfriend giggled. The pretty one stared. I said calmly, Hajime Machite. The one who liked me covered her mouth with her hand in shock at my using a Japanese greeting. The other one started speaking fast, fluent Japanese to me. Nah, chill, that's all I know. Speak English, I told them. Sorry, her friend said. Her name is Akimi, she pointed at the pretty one. Can't she tell me that? I asked. She speaks no English, her friend answered. She's only been here for a few months, her first time to America. Oh, I said. Akimi spoke in Japanese to her friend. She wants to know if she can touch your skin. Her friend translated. I stood there smiling about how bugged out her first request and this whole scenario was. I was definitely not the only black guy in Chinatown. In fact, there were black people shopping and passing through all day every day. Akimi spoke again. Akimi spoke again in Japanese. She said, you are so beautiful, the other girl giggled. Akimi blushed. How old is she, I asked her friend. 
She is 16, her friend answered. Then she asked, how old are you? 14, I said, clocking their reactions. They spoke to each other. Akimi looked a little disappointed. She says, you are so tall for 14, her friend translated. Tell her, I said, it's easy for me to be taller than her. Akimi's smile returned. They stood there glancing at each other like they were trying to read each other's mind, then glancing back at me. I didn't know where to move with this. I was telling myself, I'm good at getting money, fighting, and guns, but virgin with the girls. I don't know if she saw my age as an opportunity to switch things around and take control over me. She stepped in and touched my hand. Her off-white skin and clean, unpainted fingernails today stroked me until an unfamiliar sensation ran up my arm and into my chest. She moved her fingertips into my palms and that felt even better. She said some words to me in Japanese. Her soft, musical tone of voice got me hard. My mind was steady, telling my body to calm down. She whispered something to her friend. Then her friend said to me, she hopes maybe sometimes you and her could go out for a walk and talk together like friends. I nodded yes and said, okay. I was thinking the three of us must be going out together. Otherwise, me and Akimi couldn't talk about shit. Are you coming? I asked her friend. I can only come if you guys go tomorrow. I'm just here visiting Akimi. I don't live in New York. On Sunday, I'm going back home, she said. Okay, tomorrow, I'll come by the umbrella stand around four, I told her friend. She looked surprised that I knew where Akimi worked, as though she thought this whole thing just started when she showed up. I knew then that she had no idea how long Akimi had been checking me out. Oh, then you know where Akimi works, she laughed. I've seen her around, I said coolly. Then they spoke their language to each other. Don't come by the shop. Meet us at the bakery on Doyer. Do you know it? Her friend asked. Yeah, it's across from the movie theater. Cool. I watched as they turned and walked away. Walking to the subway, I thought about Akimi's powerful, dark eyes. The curve and structure of her face was so striking. Seeing her up close for the first time, I realized she was even more beautiful. With her small nose and thick, pretty black girl lips. I guess it was the unknown that drew out my interest in her. The fact that she had staked me out for three months without ever speaking one word was sweet to me. The fact that each time I saw her, she was either alone or working. I couldn't just look at her and feel like I instantly knew everything about her the way I could with females who lived on my block. They were either very loud and pushy or quiet but completely predictable either way. Everyone around our way knew which guys had already ran through them. 
They all had copycat styles, crazy attitudes, and ways of talking. Akimi's style was vibrant and unique, especially compared to some of the very plain looking Asian females I seen coming and going in Chinatown. After one face-to-face meeting, she already had me feeling like I was on some type of adventure. After replaying our encounter in my head, I realized her friend never asked me my name. That works out better for me, I told myself. Since I've been living here, I discovered that Americans are either too impatient or too stupid to pronounce a name if it isn't common to them, like Bob, Dave, or Jack. When my mother first took me to school to get me registered, the people escorted us to meet my new teacher and classmates. When we got to the right room number, I handed the teacher my registration card. My name was clearly printed across the top of the paper. The teacher looked at it and announced, Welcome. Please introduce yourself to the class. I told them my full name, my first name, my father's first name, and my grandfather's first name, which is customary in my home country. They all started roaring with laughter. One fat boy even spilled out of his chair and onto the floor. One girl, black-skinned like me, started shouting, Oonga Boonga! My mother tapped my shoulder and we both turned and left. At the time, my mother could not speak anything except Arabic. When we got away from the school, she asked me to tell her exactly what happened back there in that classroom without leaving one word out. I told her the short, simple story, which really had nothing to it. On the train, she sat silently for some seconds. Then she said, America, the land of the fatherless children. We never returned to any public school. My mother said nothing good could come out of a school where praying is forbidden. She had me keep up my studies at home. This included math, science, English, Arabic, and the Quran. At first, I was on a tight at-home study schedule. Over the years, my mother rewarded my discipline by allowing me to freestyle. I read all kinds of books, some from the public library, some purchased at the Open Mind bookstore. I even used to watch people on the buses and trains reading. I would check the title of the book a person was holding, and if they looked really into it, I would check out that same title for myself. So when anyone in this country asks me my name, I tell them whatever comes to mind. Sometimes it's a short version of one of my five true names. Sometimes it's a name that has the same letters as one of my names, but all mixed up to spell something else. Sometimes it's a nickname or just the name I want a certain person to call me. At our Brooklyn apartment that evening, I showered and got fresh and dressed. I showered and got fresh dressed. 
My mother had her merchandise wrapped. She and my sister and I all ate dinner together. Afterward, I picked up my backpack and left to do the Uma Designs product deliveries. As soon as I finished, I headed straight over to the dojo to meet my mans, Amir and Chris. Amir lives in the East New York projects. Chris is from Flatbush and lives in a brownstone. We all the same age. We all first met each other at the dojo on tryout day seven years back. I was surprised. They were the only boys who showed up with their fathers. I showed up for self. While most students had class once weekly, the three of us trained side by side three nights a week in ninjutsu. Despite being from completely separate neighborhoods, we became best friends. I think we all chose this martial arts school for similar reasons. It was authentic. Our teacher was actually from Japan, where the art form originated. He taught us things that were important to our survival and didn't feed us a lot of bullshit. I admired that Sensei was a quiet man, but very deadly. He made it clear to each of us who survived his tryouts that he trained level-headed boys to become killers in the name of self-defense and at the highest level to become ninjas. He told us in his presentation that the difference between a samurai warrior and a ninja is a samurai is trained to carry out orders while a ninja is trained to think for himself, master flexibility, execute and finish off his enemy. When I went to join up, there were about 35 kids who showed up and were interested in trying out. After Sensei gave his no-nonsense introduction and the explanation of ninjutsu, some of their mothers grabbed their son's little hands, rushed out the door, and never returned. He had my full attention when he explained that unlike karate and other martial arts forms, his students did not compete in tournaments. He said fighters who train for tournaments become comfortable with predictable boundaries, limiting rules, particular styles and planned scenarios. In the streets, he said, there is no courtesy or choreography. An enemy will do any and everything and a ninja must not be locked into one particular style. He must always be flexible and prepared for the unexpected. He assured the students who took the training seriously that if we practiced hard and advanced, we would even be afforded the elite opportunity to learn weaponry. He told us to forget about belts, white belts, yellow belts, orange belts, red belts, black belts. They had no real meaning. When you become a master, the sensei and the student will both know and acknowledge. He said that only a fool would advertise his skills. 
it is much better to move quietly and be unrecognized by your opponent. Sensei promised we would learn the points on the human body that were easy to attack and difficult to defend. He told us that to finish off your opponent, there were several tidy techniques beyond the barrel of a gun. Sensei's students traveled from throughout the five boroughs to get his training. We were all drawn to Asian culture, the weapons and fighting skills. Up until this point, Chris and Amir, who were always talking about girls, had never mentioned Asian women. I'm sure they would be surprised if I told them I would meet up with two Asian girls tomorrow. Usually, the three of us could speak about anything, but I already knew I would not tell them about Akimi. Deliveries completed. I was walking up the busy Brooklyn block on Friday night, headed for the dojo. I was checking my left side, my right side, and even using the eyes and back of my head, but I was looking in the wrong direction when Amir leaped out from where he was crouched down in between two beat-up old cars. He attacked me. He used the handles from my own backpack to choke me. I ran my moves on him, using an elbow to the head, causing him to loosen his grip. I took advantage and made him fall backward. He broke his fall and charged forward. I was already in my stance, ready for his next attack. This young kid rolled up talking about, oh shit, oh shit. He appointed himself fight promoter and a small crowd gathered around, charged up to watch me and Amir kill each other. That time I struck first. There was a series of blows, strikes, and kicks. I got in a few and blocked some. He got in one real good shot to my chin. As abruptly as it all started, we stopped. Amir came down from midair and we just started walking. The crowd booed. They didn't know this is how we normally do. We had them all psyched. As usual, we argued all the way to the dojo about which one of us actually won this encounter. Soon as we reached the place, we saw Chris getting out of the back of his father's car. Friday nights were reserved for beginners, so we stayed out of the way in the dojo. After seven years of training there, on our nights off, we used it as a meetup spot for us three like a community center. Meanwhile, Sensei was patiently instructing a class of beginners. I wondered if we looked that out of balance and hopeless when we first began. Check this out. I met this cat, Tyreek, who asked me about joining some basketball team that's jumping off over at Boys and Girls High School next Friday night. I told them, what y'all think about that? What about it, Chris asked. It's some games leading up to a tournament. Y'all want to get down? What's the stakes? Amir asked. I don't know, man. I didn't ask. We could hustle up more cash on our own. Unless they got some kind of real tight prizes, Chris said. Yeah, we can't just put in all that work for just one big ass trophy and some bullshit ribbons and t-shirts, Amir added. You remember what happened before when we won that peewee tournament? They only had one brass trophy for the whole team this year, Chris said. We all laughed. 
Yeah, I had to beat y'all down for that one. That's why that piece of junk is still at my house, Amir Bragg. Nah, it's at your house because I didn't want it, I reminded Amir. We pushed through the dojo door, laughing and cracking jokes, following behind Chris, who had his basketball. On the basketball court, a couple of blocks over from the dojo, we three was known as the Shake and Take Boys because of how we put it down. At first, the Shake and Bake Boys used to run that court over that way, but we beat them enough times that we took their spot, their title, (laughs) and their money. We wasn't the type of ball hustlers who pretended not to know one another, then beat other unsuspecting players out of their paper. We made it known that we worked together. We never let no other players come in and divide us up or pick us onto their squad. If somebody wanted to battle us, they had to bring their three, because our three stayed the same. We three had balled on the same team at local parks for so long that our styles flowed together. I never had to worry about passing the ball and Chris not being on point. Chris had what the girls called a baby face. It must have been true because other players used to to underestimate him all the time. Double team me and leave him wide open. He could sink it way out from the deep wings of the court, so me and Amir used to feed him unpredictable and slick-ass passes. He stayed alert, played great defense, got good looks, and didn't panic under pressure. Amir was nice and smooth with his his three-pointers, plus mad nice with layups also. He was a showman who was dedicated to making any of his moves look good. He liked to humiliate his opponents, which he did often. He hated punks who called fouls because he loved knocking players over and respected them more when they tried to knock him over too. If they wanted to fight about it, Amir used it as a chance to practice our fighting skills with untrained street fighters. Known for being completely silent on the court, the most swift, and for the way I handled the ball, anything the two of them couldn't do, I picked up the slack. Whenever a few dudes seen us running the court at the park, they came up with a challenge. (laughs) Amir always set up a bet, we always win. Niggas can't handle loss, even when it's fair and square. And the older the cats, the more they tend to bitch and moan. Most of the time, we three got a fight. We didn't hesitate. We battled like Brooklyn. We held our own and collected our money. Chris was like our treasurer. He held on to the bulk of our winnings, minus a couple of slices of pizza and drink. We agreed that we was going to save up to buy a car when we all turned old enough to get our licenses. Chris wanted a Pontiac Sunbird. Amir wanted the Fiero GT. I had my eye on this mean-ass pretty Porsche I saw at the dealer. Seriously though, we all knew that chances were we would end up dropping a few G's on a used bomb and all taking turns driving or riding together. This night, the teens who showed up to challenge us didn't have no money. They rejected Amir's bet and wanted to play for fun. Amir laughed at their broke asses and told them to step 
off. They got tight about it because they had four girlies on the side holding their radio and waiting on them. These cats would not move off the middle of the court. Chris knew shit was about to heat up, so he waved me and Amir over talking about, fuck it, let's bounce, there's no money here. Chris was like that. He would fight when pushed, but he tried to keep fists down and profits up. Determined, Amir stepped up to them and said, we'll play you for your girls. I'm checking for the red bone anyway. If we win, they hang out with us for the night. If you win, we'll let you walk with 50 more dollars than you got right now. Amir smiled, waiting for their response. Chris took a good look at the girls and picked one for himself. The mother dudes were standing there with their screw faces on, mumbling secrets back and forth to one another, vexed at the girls who were looking more and more like they were liking Amir's bold style. I took a couple of steps back so I could get a good look at them niggas to see where their hands was at and what they was carrying in them pockets. The shortest dude among them threw up his hands and said, fuck it, let's run it. Matter of fact, make it $100, the teen said. Amir hollered, deal. I had money in my pockets. Uma Designs money, which I had just collected, was in my front pants pocket. My tips were in my inside jacket pocket. I also always kept $500 of my own in my right leg pocket in case of emergency. I didn't know if Amir and Chris had enough on them. I knew Amir was the type who would place a big bet whether he could pay it off or not. That's how sure he always was. As Amir took the ball back and checked it, the girls turned the volume up on LL Cool J's joint rock the bells. Amir passed me the ball. Soon as I started bouncing the ball, Amir started talking shit to fuck with their minds. It's good y'all took the deal. (laughs) Them girls was gonna leave y'all asses anyway because you niggas ain't got no money. While the kid checking Amir let Amir's words take effect on him, I passed the ball back to Amir who laughed in their faces as he shook them up and laid it up. They played hard and sweated a lot, but seemed more focused on their anger than the hoops. Sensei always said, anger cancels good judgment. Soon as one of them reached in for the ball, I made it disappear. They didn't see it again until it was swishing through the net. That night, Chris was the high scorer. Amir was the showman who purposely messed with their minds. They couldn't fuck with us. We ran a full court three on three. In less than an hour, we took them down. Curse words hung over their heads like cartoon characters. Steam blew out their ears. The short one threw the ball against the fence way on the other side of the court. Then they made their move. Two of them went and threw their arms around their girls. The other grabbed his radio and tried to walk off. Shorty, Amir called out to the light-skinned one. Come here. She yanked herself from out of the other one's grip and turned back to look at Amir. Easily, she began walking over to our side. Get your ass over here, the other guy screamed on her. She didn't listen to him. 
Now she was all up on a mirror and all three of her girls had followed her over too. The three niggas charged us. Amir pushed the girls to the side and we all started brawling on the cement court. The girls started screaming and jumping up and down like excited cheerleaders. Their titties bouncing up and their asses pulling them back down to the ground. Them boys got tired before we did. We could have fought all night. We left them on the ground and walked away with the four girls. The short motherfucker stood up, holding his head from the pain we put on him. He started hollering about the girl in the blue jacket was his sister. I figured he had to be lying because what would his sister be doing over here walking away with us? Quickly, I looked in her eyes. She didn't say she wasn't his sister. Matter of fact, she didn't say nothing. Go back over there, I told her. (laughs) She sucked her teeth, stomped her foot, and went. Chris's lip was busted. We got a cup of ice from Mickey D's and kept it moving. Where we going, Amir's girl asked. Where y'all wanna go, Chris answered. I don't know, Chris's girl responded. We can go to my house, the girl walking beside me said to everybody. You think we wanna hang out with your mother at your house? Chris asked her sarcastically. She ain't home, the girl said in a bold voice. How can you be sure, Chris asked. Because she works all night in the toll booth at the bridge. She on her way to work right now, she said with complete confidence. All right, let's do it then, Amir said. Is your father home? I asked her. Everybody started cracking up, a bending over type of cracking up and laughing. No one bothered to answer my question. Don't worry, the girl said. We all kept walking, now following her lead to the subway. I felt I had to ask at least one more question. What about them niggas from back there? Do they live around your way? I asked. All of my boys stopped walking. They were getting focused now and waiting on her answer. I could see that Amir now understood where I was headed with my questioning. I wasn't one to walk right into a setup. Why should we give them boys time to get locked and loaded? I didn't want to catch a case on some bullshit. Them niggas? The red bone asked as if she wasn't just associated with them five minutes ago. We don't know them niggas, Chris's girl added then laughed. We met them on the train right up here, the girl walking beside me said. Chris and Amir were cool with their answers. They all started walking together again. I gotta work early tomorrow morning. I'll ride over with y'all. But then I got a step, I told them. What about me? The girl walking beside me asked. What about you? I answered her straight-faced. Forget it, you ain't right, she said back. On the train ride, me and her didn't say nothing to each other. The other two couples was all hugged up. The Redbone and Amir were laughed up. She lived up in Harlem in the Lincoln Projects, known to us Brooklyn cats as Stinkin' Lincoln. That night, as we rolled up outside her building, we had to get by 15 or so dudes in bubble jackets and hoods. They were watching us. We were clocking them. I kept my hand in my pocket on my heat. In any projects, 
Even when it's dark outside, you can still see and feel the hatred. On the noisy streets, when niggas confront niggas, there's usually a loud silence before somebody starts busting shots. The silence was already there. The girl with me broke it. What's up, Petey, Brian, Ramel, Mook? She rattled off more than 10 of their names like they was a bunch of fucking kindergartners. They spoke back to her. We didn't break our stride. Somehow her calling out their names lightened up the tension. With the ceasefire in place, we made it to the building lobby without having to let off. We elevated to the fourth floor. In the upstairs hallway in front of her apartment, 4G, she moved her hands in and out of her back pants pockets and then her front pockets, searching for her keys. Chris and his girl and the other two was laying up against the wall, waiting. I pulled out my 4-5 and handed it to Amir. Let me let you hold something, I told him. He took it. Good looking, bro, he said. All the girl's eyes followed my gun. The one fumbling with her keys started staring into my eyes so hard she was melting my pupils. Come on, bitch, her girlfriend nudged her jokingly. She found her keys lost through a hole inside her jacket pocket. As she opened her door, they all pushed inside. She stood holding the door open for me. I turned my back to her and pushed through the metal exit door leading to the stairs. I took the four flights down. I left out the side of the building, switching up my path.